This pandemic has given you lots of time to catch up on all your binge watching. While I've been binge watching Jesus with The Chosen, which is just a shameless plug for, I would love for you to be watching that. I also really like the show NCIS. Have you seen this show before? It's been running for 18 seasons. They've just renewed for a 19th season. This is all about special agent Gibbs and his team. And a lot of times they're trying to solve a crime, but they're really trying to figure out how something was covered up because cover-ups are a real thing. And it's interesting, the Bible is filled with cover-ups. Humans trying to make sure that you don't know the silly things that they've done. For instance, Adam and Eve, who in Genesis 3 decide to eat the forbidden fruit. And well, that doesn't turn out so well. They try to cover that up, but well, God ends up having to cover them up because, well, they're naked. Exodus 2, Moses kills an Egyptian who's abusing one of his brethren. And he tries to cover it up by burying the Egyptian. Or Ananias and Sapphira from Acts 5 who lie about the money that they're giving to the church and they end up dead on the ground and they're trying to cover it up. I think though the biggest cover up in the entire Bible belongs to our friend King David. He wants to try to figure out a way to hide the fact that he commits adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. And then he arranges for the murder of her husband. And he's not the only one that dies in the whole account. And yet David is a man after God's own heart, question mark. It wouldn't take NCIS to figure out that David did this. He wasn't actually very secretive about what he did. So this morning, as we continue in this series that I'm calling Lessons from Three Kings, we are... In that middle section, we've looked at King Saul. Now we're looking at King David. And pretty soon we're going to start looking at King Solomon here in a couple weeks. But this is that moment where everything goes downhill for our friend David. So we're going to encounter six really practical lessons on how not to live from our friend King David today. And as we watch David lose focus on his relationship with God, What you're going to find is that there's a lot more focus on him and fulfilling his own desires and wants. And the good news is that even though David really blows it, I mean royally, he turns to God for forgiveness. And that repentance means that he receives God's mercy and his love. And we have the same opportunity today. So three movements in our passages today in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. I'm calling them the taking, the cover-up, and the revealing. Why? Because it just sounded really neat. Okay, so turning to 2 Samuel 11, this first section I'm calling the taking. Why am I calling it the taking? Well, because Samuel, who was the prophet, and we read about him in 1 Samuel, the people of Israel want a king, and they say, give us a king. He says, if you want a king, you need to know you're not going to get a giver. You're going to get a taker. All kings are takers. They're not givers. So in about seven verses, he says six times the word take, 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 take in 1 Samuel 8. 
He's going to take your sons and recruit them in the army. He's going to take your daughters to be slaves and cooks. He's going to take your fields. He's going to take the best of your servants and livestock. going to tax you to feed his servants. And even when you ask relief, the Lord's not going to help you. Kings are takers. And this is what Samuel tells us. Well, now we're going to see the taking full on. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Let's take a look at these first five verses. Then I'll kind of do some explaining. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, because there's a time when that happens, David sent Joab, his commander, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Verse 3. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Ah, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her and she had purified herself from her uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman, Bathsheba, conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. All right. Let's make a few observations about what's going on here. And along the way, we're going to learn some valuable lessons from David's missteps and poor decisions in this passage. This first verse, it says David remained. David remained in Jerusalem. Now, interestingly enough, this word remain doesn't mean that he just stayed. It's like not neutral. It's he made a decision to sit down. I am sitting here and I'm not going anywhere. I may be standing up on the inside, but I'm sitting down on the inside. And he makes the decision, I am not going out with my guys. I am staying here. And why is this important? Well, because the role of the king of Israel was to lead God's people into battle, to defeat God's enemies. And yet he was disobeying the Lord by sitting at home. And now I think for us, temptation to do the wrong thing whatever that wrong thing is. Temptation to sin increases when we're already determined, I'm going to do my own thing. And I'm not going to do what you want me to do, God. I'm not going to do what everybody else is doing. I'm sitting right here. Lesson number one, beware. Beware when you disobey God and stay behind that the enemy of your soul isn't already setting a trap, his next trap for your sin. I just think that oftentimes one moment of disobedience leads to further temptation. Now at this point, David's probably about 20 years into his reign. He's achieved almost everything you can imagine. He's had military success. He's got multiple wives. He's brought the ark into Jerusalem and there's all this incredible worship going on. I mean, he's built this incredible palace. I mean, he has, he's achieved it all. And I wonder 
He's feeling really loved and admired. That's what the Bible says. I wonder if he just doesn't feel like he has anything else to prove. He's at the top of his game, and yet nobody's there to hold him accountable. We've all seen what happens when leaders are not held accountable and how their own lust for power will destroy others around them. And so David's on the top of his game. Lesson number two I want to bring to your attention. Beware, I love the word beware. Beware of temptation right after your greatest victory is won. Oftentimes it's, you're not tempted when things are going bad. Actually, when things are going bad, you're probably praying like crazy and really dependent and crying out to God, trying to figure stuff out. But when things go well, we begin to think, well, maybe I got this on my own. Maybe I don't really need God all that much. And right after your greatest victory, you are the most susceptible to failing. It should be the time when you invite someone to be with you, to help you hold, be held accountable when things go really, really well. Well, in verse two, David gets up from his bed. Why? Because he's lounging. He's not doing anything. He's taking a nap. Walking around on the roof. Now, in the last 15 years, they've done all kinds of archaeology in Jerusalem, discovered where David's palace is. It's on the northern end of the city, and it's all downhill from there. So he could easily see from his roof into all sorts of windows and rooftop terraces, courtyards, and things like that. So he's napping. He's lounging around. He decides to walk around on his roof to see what he can see. And I wonder how often he took walks up there. I'm sure it was very delightful where the breeze would come through. Maybe the stench of the city streets was far below him. And I wonder if this was a common thing for him, that he was constantly looking with his binoculars or trying to see people bathing on their roof. I wonder if maybe he had seen people bathing before. Maybe he'd seen Bathsheba before. Maybe he went up there specifically looking for her. Don't know. Those are all questions that I have. But I know this. David is bored. He's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's supposed to be out in battle with his, with his troops. Didn't have a challenge. So without a challenge, the first beautiful woman that comes across his radar becomes a point of conquest. Like so many men in our culture, making women conquest. Lesson number three, beware. See, I love the word. Beware of times of boredom for the enemy of your soul does his best work when you don't have clear focus, purpose, or meaningful work to do. Your grandmother was right. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. Your grandmother didn't say that? So, so many men struggle with a sense of boredom and loss of purpose, especially as we get into our midlife. John Eldridge wrote a book called Wild at Heart. It talks about how we're wired as men and that we're answering the question, do I have what it takes? He says this, we've got three desires. Deep in his heart, every man longs for a battle to fight, an adventure to live and a beauty to rescue. And I think so many men become either angry 
or passive as they age, unless they're living out that core desire that God has given us. Eldridge talks about men in the church, people who are Jesus followers, who are bored, angry, and and passive. And I believe that this really sets the table for temptations like pornography, gambling, self-medicating, overworking to find significance. So David has reached the mountaintop. He stopped dreaming with God. Instead, he finds himself trying to find an adventure in a woman that he's not supposed to have. Who he didn't have any right to. Now, if you're new to this series, you've only missed about 24 messages, so no problem catching up. But along the way, we've learned that David has, looks like at least six wives, and he's had at least six kids with six wives. So it's not like he's sitting at home really lonely, wishing that he had a woman in his life. But somehow this isn't enough to satisfy. It's interesting. We think that if we give in to our urges and allow them to be satisfied, that those urges will go away. But I'm here to argue that they just multiply. Having more wives didn't satisfy him more. So David's walking around on the roof. He's looking at things that he shouldn't be looking at. And he finds a woman bathing. Now, all of the art that you've ever seen, including the art that I showed on the, on the screen a few minutes ago, you know, just show Bathsheba naked out there, you know, sudsing up. But we don't know that. In fact, I know from the Hebrew word that this act, he, she was actually doing a ceremonial cleansing after her monthly cycle. She was doing a righteous, good, holy, pure thing. Now, it makes me crazy when I read commentators, especially the rabbis, that try to put all of the blame on Bathsheba, somehow that she seduced David. I summarily reject that. Why? Because in the end, when David is held to account, he's held to account, Bathsheba is not. I've got a couple other reasons, but I'll share those next week. So David, I believe, is fully responsible. Verse three, David then sends somebody out. Hey, can you find out about this really good looking lady over here? And the man comes back. The servant says, um, he's kind of just trying to be gentle because, you know, when you serve the king, you could get your head cut off if you say the wrong thing. Like, um, hey, just David, uh, already married? Uh, just, you should know, uh, her father's high up in your royal court. Um, and you know, you know, her husband, he's one of your key military leaders. So when you put the pieces together, here is what I've figured out by looking at the names. Cause oftentimes you see these names and you go next, these names are really important. Why? Because this servant's going, Hey, David, Ahithophel, long word. He's your most trusted advisor is her grandfather. Her father is high up in your court, Iliam. Her husband is one of your three, 30 mighty men, David's mighty men, the Gibberim. These guys are like the, the, the best of the best warriors. Like these are three really trusted people, very close in your circle. 
you probably don't want to like, you just leave her alone. She's not yours. David has an opportunity to do the right thing. Yes, it would be the right thing to leave her alone and not pull her in and sleep with her. However, he's given the opportunity, realizing a sense of loyalty to these three men that are close in his life that serve him so well. That should have also given him some, some pause, but he blows right through the stop sign. David is given a way of escape. It's an exit ramp off of the highway of pain that he's about to drive down. And God always gives all of us an exit ramp when we're tempted. How do I know this? Well, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 says this, no temptation has seized you except which is common to man. And God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he'll also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. The lesson is this, lesson number four. When you're tempted, God will always provide a way of escape so that you don't fail as long as you watch for it. Verse four, David sends his messengers to, quote, take her. That's what the original word says. It's exactly the same verb that we got back in 1 Samuel 8 with Samuel. He told us this was going to happen, and here it is. And given the, the, the social distance and the, the lack of rights that women had in that day and age, in that time in history, Bathsheba would have not really had the ability to, to refuse the king. This is the Me Too movement long before it was a thing. And we've seen this movie before with people using their position, privilege, power, and causing someone to do something that they would rather not do. And it makes it even more grievous. Most, most scholars think that Bathsheba is probably only 16 or 17 years old, maybe only married for one or so years to Uriah. She doesn't have any children yet. David is likely 50. David wasn't counting on Bathsheba getting pregnant. And so when she sends word to David within a few weeks, I am pregnant, David scrambles for what I'll call the cover-up. Now he is going to cover up this the best he can. Don't know who he thinks he's fooling because I think all of his servants knew exactly what was happening. But let me summarize verses six through 24 for you. In an effort to cover all this up, David decides, ah, I will send a message to the front and bring Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, home. And while he's here, I'm just going to make a little small talk and then send him home. And hopefully he'll sleep with his wife. And then when she, it's found out that she's pregnant later, everybody will think it's his. Problem solved. Well, Uriah comes off the front. He won't go home. He says, my men are in the field and the ark is in a tent somewhere. Nope. This is not the right thing. Sleeping with the servants. And so he sleeps in the palace with the servants, ready at all times. He's incredibly loyal. David tries one more time. What if I get him drunk? So he gets him really drunk, gives him this great feast and tells him, hey, go home. Sleep with your wife. Nope, won't do it. I'm gonna be faithful. Just in case you need me, I'm gonna stay here with the king's servants. David flustered 
finally, desperately, writes up a sealed message for Joab, his army commander, saying, put Uriah at the front by, when you're doing the siege by the walls and then have everybody else draw back so he's killed in battle. Joab is a political animal and he is David's nephew. He is an enabler. And so Joab then is given this death sentence that Uriah unwittingly, unknowingly delivers his own death sentence to Joab. Joab opens it and makes sure that that plan goes into place. And not only does Uriah die, but several other men die in this whole kerfuffle as per the plan. And when the news comes from the front to David of Uriah's death, along with these other men, this is David's cold-hearted response. Verse 25. David told the messenger, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. Sin and the effort to cover up his wrongdoing, to protect his own reputation, has taken David's soft heart and hardened it. And this is the same man who wept over Saul's death and even Abner's death, these people who spent years trying to kill David. He wrote songs about them and lamented. And yet, this is one of his most faithful soldiers, one of his mighty men who he should be absolutely grieving over. He just shirks it off as if it's nothing. When we spend time covering up our sin, our hearts always get hardened. At this point, David's thinking, I'm home free. I figured it out. He's dead. Now I can pull Bathsheba in. She can be my wife. No one will know these awful things happened. There's a theologian, 1800s Schaefer, who said this. It may be a secret sin on earth, but it is an open scandal in heaven. With Solomon, David's son, who wrote Proverbs and wrote this in Proverbs 28, verse 13. He who conceals his sin does not prosper but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Lesson number five, you will never successfully hide your sins. Covering them up will only make their eventual revealing more painful. How do I know this? I'll give you three verses because one wouldn't be enough. Numbers 20, uh, 32, verse 23. Be sure your sins will find you out. Galatians 6. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he'll also reap. And Hebrews 4, verse 13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Well, it's going to end poorly. But what about Bathsheba? Bathsheba hears that her husband dies, verse 26. When Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him 
And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. And the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Understatement of the century. But David might have felt like he got away with it. He dodged a bullet just because now we've, we've, my, public, my public persona is saved. But a God of justice is still at work. And God sends the equivalent of David's pastor, the prophet Nathan, to confront him. I'm going to write my blog this week on what we can learn about confronting others when they are doing the wrong thing, which is a lost art in our society. I'll do that this week. So I won't really cover that aspect of this, but I do want to read this passage for you. Then I'll make a couple observations because Nathan expertly confronts his friend and loves him well, but speaks truth by using a story. Verse one, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, here's a story. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why? Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, 
I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have made enemies of the Lord, show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. Wow, that's a lot. So here's a few observations. Nathan is brilliant. He realizes that this is a shepherd boy who is now a shepherd king and who understands how precious a little ewe lamb is. And so he uses this illustration. In the story, he talks about a poor man who only had one lamb. I would say one wife. He contrasts it with a rich man who had many, many wives. And very interestingly here, there are three words in this story that I want to point out to you. I think it helps to illustrate how temptation and sin enters our life and becomes much worse than we ever imagined. There's three words for this visitor that comes and visits the rich man. The first is halek. It means to be a traveler. It's someone who, who stops by. The second is arach, which is to be a visitor. One who maybe stays a while, who's invited to stay. The last is ish, which is really just the word for man. But the sense of a man being the master of his own household is what I'm seeing here. So there's these three words. Why would there be three different words for this same thing in this parable? Well, I think it's beautiful, a beautiful picture of how when sin is invited into into our lives, when we're tempted and we say yes to sin, how it slowly takes over. Because the wayfarer or the, the traveler is just the idea of, of if you sin once, well, I'm just going to sin once and I'm going to get it out of my system. And then, then, then the desire will be gone. It'll just be a one-time thing. But that visitor quickly becomes, I mean, that traveler becomes a visitor. They take their toothbrush out and put it next to the sink and they unpack their suitcase and begin to put things in the drawers because they're going to be here a while. And you don't think that you're going to get into a habitual kind of sin pattern. But all of a sudden, before you know it, you do. And eventually, this visitor becomes the master of your house. And that practice, that thing, that addiction takes over your life, becomes your master, controls every aspect of your very life. And you try to figure out who just changed all the locks on all the doors. And now all of a sudden, you're held hostage by your own sin. I don't think anyone wakes up some morning and say, I think I'm going to become a drug addict today and I'm going to lose all my money and have my my marriage go down the tubes and, um, you know, run off all my friends. No one says that. No one says... I'm going to get hooked on pornography and then that's going to lead uh, to a lot of illicit behavior and then I'm going to find a prostitute and then I'm, no, I ruin my marriage, no. And yet temptation is so subtle, but its intent is to master you and to live in your house 
And David, I love his response to all this. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't make excuses like Saul did. He just owns his stuff. Nathan tells him that the Lord has forgiven him and that he's not gonna die. Why is he telling him he's not gonna die? Well, partly because adultery and murder would be capital punishment kind of crimes. Nathan's saying you're off the hook. But David's also thinking about the afterlife. He says in Psalm 51, which is linked with this account, please don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. The king and leaders in the Old Testament had a gift of the Holy Spirit with them to be able to empower them to do their, their job, their leadership. And he was afraid, where's, where's this gonna take me? The good news is for us in the new, new covenant, we don't have to worry, those of us who are Christians, we've given our lives to Jesus. He's given us a gift of, their Holy, of his Holy Spirit. Although we grieve the Holy Spirit with our sin, he's not taken away from us and he doesn't depart from us. So you don't have to worry about that. How is David feeling prior to being forgiven? Well, Psalm 32 tells us. Let's take a look really quick. It says this, uh, verse one. Blessed is he who, whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and who, in whose spirit is no deceit. Verse three. When I kept silent, my bones just wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped like the heat of the summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. David is miserable. He's, his, even his body physically is aching. He's just under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and repentance, turning from his own ways and admitting his sin brought forgiveness to David. It's like a million pound weight lifted off of him, but it did not take away the consequences of his sin. Nathan makes this very clear. In the story, he says, well, that, guy, that man who stole that, that one lamb, he's got to re repay back four times. Where does he get that? From the Torah. That if you were to take one man's lamb, the retribution is four lambs. David will lose four sons to the sword or to death, mostly to the sword. The first is this baby who dies. The second is Amnon. Absalom and Adonijah. From here on out, David's household is a mess. And it's said that the sword will never depart from his house. And that's right. Lesson six, God is faithful to forgive us of our sins, but he doesn't take away the consequences of our sins. And this is so frustrating for so many of you. They say, well, wait a second. I'm doing all the right things. Why doesn't he take away the consequences first? Because God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he also reaps. Now, the rest of the story goes like this. Verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her. 
She gave birth to a son and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. That might be news to some of you. Solomon's got a different name. Yeah, he does. Why does he never refer to that? I don't know. But I think it's more of the banner, the Lord's banner over him is love and acceptance. Why? Because this first baby, he died. Solomon will become the next king. And it's Nathan who comes and sends word about this, which is so beautiful that Nathan can have such a hard moment with his friend to love him so well, but to speak the truth in love like Ephesians 4.15 says. May you find friends who will speak the truth in love to you. So maybe you've never done what David did. You think, Andrew, I don't think I need to worry about those things. But are you carrying around old stuff, unconfessed sin? Maybe you're carrying around shame and guilt from things that maybe even happened a long time ago and you just can't shake them. The cover-up that you really need is atonement. It's the covering of your sins by Jesus' blood. It's the forgiveness from God that he offers. 1 John 1, 9 says this, if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and he's just, he's fair to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness or unrighteousness. Whatever you've done, he can forgive it. I think that's really powerful and important to know, but I think this second part is also important as I thought about this. James 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. There is something powerful about admitting to someone else where you've blown it. Yes, we've got to confess them to God. There's something very powerful about confessing your sins. I really blew it in this area and receiving prayer and and having someone else say, you know what? That is under the blood of the lamb. You are forgiven. I declare that you are forgiven. I heard you confess to God. That is done. No, we're not going to bring that back up. Your, Your sins have been thrown as far as the East is from the West. And God remembers your sins no more. What it look like to have a soul friend who you could actually pour your heart out to and for them not to say, oh no, it's okay, it's okay. Not be soft on sin, but to say, oh man, that's really hard. That's really crummy. That's not God's best for you, but God can forgive you. And to speak truth and kindness and love. Because I believe that a lot of us are carrying around a lot of junk. Coming out of this pandemic season, I believe our eyes have been focused on ourselves. And I believe that the gardens of our heart have been overrun by, by weeds. Weeds of selfishness, but also unkept and unconfessed sin. And I believe this is the season to find a soul friend. The Anamkara is what the, the Celts would call it. The one who would listen to you and process with you and pray with you and cry with you and that you would take a risk with. This is what 
one of our leaders in the Alliance, Rob Reamer, who uh, has his doctorate. He teaches at NIAC, which is our seminary back on the East Coast. And he wrote a book called Soul Care. He talks a lot about the importance of, of spending time with another person just downloading your life and having them declare over you, nope, you're forgiven for that. Nope, you're forgiven for that too. Oh, do you want to pray about that? We'll pray about that together. Okay, you're forgiven for that. And just really helping you. If there's stuff that's left over, let's, let's weed that garden. Let's, let's get free so that we can love others really well in this next season. So Soul Care is a book that I would recommend for you to consider getting and reading through with another friend and beginning to trust each other and working through whatever that soul work is. I want to show you a three-minute clip of Rob talking about the importance of letting the Holy Spirit and others and God shine the light so that you can do the soul work that you need to do. Because no matter who you are, you've got some soul work to do. I want to encourage you in that. So let's take a look. All of us are broken people. We need healing. And all this month, we're looking at some of the tools that God uses to bring that healing. Dr. Rob Reamer is the author of Soul Care, Seven Transformational Principles for a Healthy Soul. Today, Rob, we want to talk about self-awareness. How do we get there to know that we might even have a problem? Yeah, you know, self-awareness is really the gateway to transformation. It doesn't guarantee it, but you can't get there without it. We use an expression lots of times in the U.S. We say, you know, what you don't know won't hurt you. But the truth is what you don't know about your soul is already killing you. So I think the, the primary tools to gaining self-awareness, one, I think sometimes God brings light into the dark places and we need to stand in the light with God and others. But two, sometimes we're truth avoidant creatures. We're reluctant to receive the light God offers. That's why we need community again, where people hold up a mirror to us and go, do you know this about yourself? Do you see this? And then there's this place where I have to reflect on both of those occurrences where God is speaking and through his word, through his spirit and where people are talking to me. And then I need to take that inside with God in reflection and really draw near and figure out what's happening and why do I do what I do? And even before we get to the seven principles, we have to understand that we need, as you say, to get alone with God and to be just honest. Yeah. And I think most life change really occurs alone with God, meaning at some point in the life change journey, there's this moment where you're alone with God and he brings revelation, whether through his word, through someone else, through something someone said, through conflict or through an illumination moment with the Holy Spirit. There's this moment where all of a sudden you see something and there's transformation. God is speaking to you. And that's where change often occurs. See, if we're sick physically, we go to the doctor. And we, you know, we're diagnosed, you've got this issue, you need this operation, you need this medicine. But when it comes to matters of the soul, yeah. it's the same thing. If we don't deal with it, it's deadly. Absolutely. And again, so often what happens is we deal with symptoms. If you're sick and you go to the doctor, the doctor may treat symptoms, but he's going to find the disease. He wants to get the disease. If he gets the disease, he can bring a cure. He can't cure you by treating symptoms. So sin management and behavior management often doesn't bring the cure. This is why Jesus says stuff like it's out of the overflow of the heart that someone speaks, thinks or acts, right? Because he talks about adultery as part of flowing out of the heart. That's an action. And so much of this stuff is coming from the inside. It, my favorite soul care question, 
What's underneath that behavior? Well, yeah. Why do you do what you do? What's underneath that? Don't come and say, well, I struggle with pornography. Well, yeah, lots of people do. What's underneath that? What's driving that behavior? Sid management, boy, that's an interesting expression. When you think about that, that's what religion is. Yeah, it's to make it exactly. look good on the outside, but we're dying on the inside. Yeah, and that was the Pharisees. And they did the same thing. They were trying to clean, as Jesus says, the outside of the cup. So, Soul Care, book that's available to you. You can find it on Amazon. We'll also have it on our Facebook page. Two other books I've mentioned along the way, or I mentioned Wild Heart, which is how a man's heart is wired and answering that question, do I have what it takes? Looking at that wounding and things like that. Really love Wild Heart. And then uh, John and Stacy Eldridge also wrote the book Captivating, which really is aimed at women for the very same purposes. So if you're finding yourself stuck, if you are hearing the story of David and hearing the man, he was stuck. I mean, he should have been on the top of his game. Everything should have been great. He should have been living into his adventurous life. And yet he finds himself just going downhill, one bad decision after the next. If you're seeing a little bit of yourself, that bored, passive, angry, purposeless, restless part of yourself, there's probably some soul work that needs to be done. So uh, I want to pray for you if you want to stand. If you're here in the house, stand with me. Love to pray for you. Bless you in this. And um, I'm just believing that this is a season of freedom for us. That as we're willing to look at our stuff and just detoxify, I just, I believe we're, we really are going to experience the life to the fullest that Jesus came to give us. And so Jesus, I pray for incredible boldness for us to make steps in working through our stuff instead of just stuffing it down and assuming that somehow it's not killing us from the inside out. I pray, Lord, for each person who is hearing my voice, whether they're here in the house or on the stream, that you would bless them with courage and strength to do the right things, to invite others into the journey. And I pray, Lord, that you would, this would be a day of freedom for so many people, that they would let go stuff that they've held on to and let you take it and heal them. So I, I bless this family in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So if you're in the house, we've got prayer in the chapel on the way out. Make sure you grab your trash. And otherwise, we'll see you next week on 4th of July.